Business Women Rock, Episode 2. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock Podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. Welcome to the second episode of the Business Women Rock podcast. I am so excited that you're here with me today. I sincerely appreciate you taking some time and listening to this story today. My interview is with Dorian Howard, or Doria, she likes to be called. She and her sister founded Milk and Honey Shoes back in 2012. It is a full-on e-commerce business that basically sells make-your-own-shoes. I'm talking choose your heel, choose your strap, choose your fabric, choose your color, whatever it is you want, whatever style you want, it is all customizable according to what you really want. So I really want you to just sit back, relax. If you're driving, turn the volume up. If you're running, turn the volume up. If you're at home, grab a glass of wine and just sit back and listen because you're going to really love the story. And I guarantee you're going to fall in love with Dory by the end of this. Okay. Have a great time and enjoy the interview. Dory, thank you so much for being on our show today. I really appreciate you taking out the time. Thanks for having me. So um, you have built such an incredible... Uh, store, an online store called Milk and Honey Shoes. And I got to tell you, the very first time I found out about you, I sat there screaming to myself going, why did I not know about this before I got married? <laughs> well, 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 the bigger question on my part is how did I not get to you before you get married? Every time I hear that, I think, what, what logs did you read? What magazines were you into? How do I get into them? Which is very smart. And you as a marketer and you as somebody who's constantly out there looking for your client and really being strategic about that is exactly why I love and I'm so happy that you're on this show today because I'm really excited to share that with everyone. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So um, I, I want to start with how, what was happening? happening before you even started your company. I know that you were the vice president of production at Paramount Pictures. I want to start with mm-hmm. how, did, how did you even get that job? So um, working in the entertainment business was all I'd ever done. I'd gotten an internship after my freshman year of college at MTV, and that led to a full-time job there. Um, I had interned that summer. I was 19 years old. At the end of uh, the end of the summer, the woman I was interning for, the assistant in the talent department, gave her notice. And her boss panicked. I mean, absolutely freaked out about the idea of being left alone with no one who, you know, no one to answer her phones or schedule her, uh, schedule her days. And I had been doing that for the past few months. So she just said, Hey, girl, like, do you want this job? And I laughed because I was in college. I was like, No, I'm going back to sophomore year in two weeks. I, I can't work here. Um, but I went home that weekend and I said to my parents, the craziest thing happened. I was just offered a full-time job working at MTV. It'd be my dream job. It was amazing. I love my summer. Wouldn't it be so neat if I could do it? Um, and because I have very liberal, understanding, supportive, spectacular parents, they said, well, if it's your dream job, why wouldn't you do it? So I ended up dropping out of college for about a year and a half, working full-time at MTV before I transferred to NYU and never left New York City for a very long time after that experience, but that did then launch my entertainment business career. So I went from MTV to Miramax to New Line, and you just once you're in that uh, in the, in that loop, it's easy to jump around. And you just worked your way up the ladder, basically. Exactly. So once I figured out what I wanted to do in the entertainment space, which was working in production and development, 
um, it made it a little easier, right? Because there's so many different facets of the business that are interesting. So it took a few years to do some time in, in celebrity talent. I did some time in publicity. And then when I moved over to development, I realized that was my home. So that's I got my first development job at New Line and then was just able to parlay one job into another and hustle and work your way up the ladder. And eventually it led me to Paramount. And what kind of projects did you work on? Um, I worked on a bunch of uh, a bunch of big movies. So always, um, always features. I worked on um, the um, Time Traveler's Wife, which was Rachel McAdams and Eric Bana. I worked on um, the Fighter, which was a Mark Wahlberg movie. I worked on um, uh, Ab- uh, the, the Last Airbender, which was an Night Shyamalan movie. And I worked on um, a Billy Crystal comedy called Parental Guidance. Those are a few of the movies I worked on. And what did you like best about working in the entertainment business? It was incredibly, um, it was incredibly creative in a storytelling way. It made me understand excellent writing. I enjoyed that I got to work with creative people that I didn't have to stare at a blank screen or blank piece of paper and actually create because I'm not good at that, but I could work with people who have created to make it better. Mm -hmm. And that was an enjoyable process. And also just coming things that, you would talk about for years or stand a page watching that come to life when the movie goes into production is, is amazing. And what do you think that some of the lessons that you learned in that job in that industry that you have now transferred over to, um, to your company? You know, not a lot of tactical, practical things in that business, but the, you know, the years I spent as an assistant working my way up and I worked in some very high pressure situations for important people. And, you learn, you learn to just get it done. It doesn't make a difference how. It doesn't make a difference if you have no idea what you're doing. But when I was an assistant at Miramax, um, the women we were working for, the people there were all incredibly demanding. They were working on spectacular, spectacularly important movies. You know, it was Shakespeare in Love and, and Good Will Hunting and Jackie Brown and some of those really great movies from the 90s. And there was a lot of pressure. So when someone would say, hey, good do act, well, I had no idea how to do X, but no wasn't an answer. So you just had to figure it out. And that skill of just figuring it out has been one of the most important skills, you know, as someone who runs a company that I've ever experienced, because you look at something and go, well, there's no way to do this. And I remember thinking early on, I go, you know what, if my boss was leaning over me and saying, get it done and get it done in two hours, it would be done. So you just have to instill that same kind of discipline when you're the boss than when someone would be yelling at you if it wasn't done. Mm, I love that. It's a really great lesson to learn and definitely something that you could use universally throughout every aspect of your life, I'm sure. So you're the vice president of, of production at Paramount Pictures. When did this little idea of Milk and Honey start coming about? When What happened there? Where did you get that idea? Um, the idea was my sister's, and she has a background in the toy business. So she worked at a bunch of very big toy companies, and she knew how to manufacture things, and she knew how to market things. So she had always had more of the entrepreneurial bug than I had and really wanted to branch out on her own and do something. Um, And when she was traveling a lot through Asia, she started getting her clothes made, and then she started getting her shoes made. She'd come visit me, and I'd say, oh, those are amazing. Uh, Can you get that? Next time you go, I'd like those in red and a three-inch heel. So we were just doing this back and forth for ourselves and never really thought about it as a business. But when we were both started to get to the point in our careers where we'd reached a level that we wanted to reach and, you know, it was maybe not everything we'd always dreamed it would be and started getting a little bit itchy and not knowing exactly what was going to happen next. 
we started talking more and more about it. And as e-commerce began to grow, and, um, you know, we are a company that could not have existed before Zappos. You know, the e-commerce numbers in the shoe space are massive. Shoes are something that people feel very comfortable buying online. We started looking at where our passion was, which was making the footwear for ourselves and looking at what was happening in the e-commerce landscape and realized that there was a business here and we should jump on it unless we're all someone else will first. So what was that like? Because now you have this idea, you saw that there was a space for it, and yet you have this very good corporate job. And I think that your sister was actually um, in a job at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what did you guys do? Um, what was that process like? Uh, scary. You know, it's really, it's really scary. But what I found to be even scarier is the idea of complacency and um, the idea of staying in that job because it was comfortable. I think comfortable is something we all crave, but I equally fear. I think it leads you to make some very scary decisions. Um, so I, you know, I try hard not to, um, to act out of fear. And that's when we decided like we either have to stop talking about this or we have to do it. And we just decided, you know, let's just dive in head first. And, it, you know, we're not going to think someone will throw us a, a, you know, we'll always get another job if we need to, but if we don't give it, take a chance now. We just never will. How did you come up with that name brand, Milk and Honey Shoes? Because we were shoe lovers and because we were starting, you know, we started with basic shoes. Like, oh, I just want, you know, a purple pair of, of flats. And then slowly we started making them more specifically to our taste and getting a little more um, precise with our requests of what we wanted. We figured, wow, if we could really figure out a way to design our own shoes, it would kind of be like the Garden of Eden or the Land of Milk and Honey. Creating an e-commerce business is definitely a unique business model. So what did you guys actually do that you knew that you needed to prepare in order to get launched? So what we, you know, when we started talking about the company, we didn't have this grand plan executed. Um, when, When my sister went to Hong Kong and she got a bunch of samples made and she shipped them to me and said, okay, do something with these samples. Well, I, I didn't know what to do with the samples. Um, but coming from the entertainment business, one thing I had was a pretty fat Rolodex. So I emailed every woman I knew and invited them over to my house and said, booze and shoes, come design your own shoes. We ended up doing a few of those different events. Um, we found different people to host them. And the idea was we needed to understand many, many things about this hypothesis. Number one, did women want to design their own shoes? Number two, could, how did they want to do it? Did they want choices? Did they want to choose from pictures? Did they want to choose from pieces? Did they want to be told what to design? Number three, we had to see, okay, so once they designed the shoe, what could, could I explain to my sister what they wanted? Could my sister explain to the cobblers? And could we send this customer back a shoe that fit their expectations and fit them? Um, so that was, that was challenging. But after those first few months of people's eyes getting really wide when they realized what they could do and the smiles on their face when they got their completed shoes, we realized, okay, we're, we're getting close to understanding what we have here. And then really the, there was a, the pinnacle moment for us was we had um, an actress wear a pair of our shoes on the red carpet. And she, her stylist told a publicist who said, hey, why don't I do a press release for you and we'll announce your company. Oh, that sounds good. So did you have a company? I mean, it sounds like you were holding all these focus groups and kind of getting the idea really solidified. So when this actress actually was wearing your shoes, did you have a company at that point? Were you ready? 
at that point, we had a WordPress website that a guy my sister was dating at the time had built for us. Pictures of shoes on it that I took with my, like, point-and-click camera. And my home address as our flagship Los Angeles showroom. <laughs> and my, my cell phone number. That was a 917 number, which is weird because it's an L.A. address. So that's what we had. We had because we certainly were nowhere close to feeling confident that we were going to put in X amount of thousands of dollars to launch this business because we didn't have the right data points yet. So, but, but we did start, you know, we would do these, we would do these parties. We'd get five, 10 orders each. We'd start making some shoes, start getting the relationships with the suppliers, you know, and start really small, completely offline to understand how this business would work. So um, when Jennifer Goodman wore our shoes, we didn't have, I mean, we didn't have a publicist. We didn't have a place for anyone to buy the shoes. So, but I don't know. I just figured, hey, press is press. Let's get started. Um, mistake number one. What happened was fashionista.com picked up the story, which is an amazing blog. Amazing blog. I've been trying since then to get back on their blog. And they picked up the story and wrote about us and drove thousands of women to our ridiculous-looking WordPress, no e-commerce website. So, People would come to the site, and unless they lived within five miles of my living room, they couldn't buy anything. I mean, there was no place to buy anything on our website. Um, but what that showed us was we could get a celebrity in our shoes. We could get them photographed. We could get a very reputable fashion blog to write about it, and that women would read about it in that blog and then come visit our site. So the missing link was there's no way to monetize it yet, but if we could build that out, we would have a business. And I remember calling my dad and saying, oh, my God, it's working. Like, it's, it's this, this crazy idea we have is actually working. And, you know, he being a very profitable businessman goes, great, how much money did you make? <laughs> right. So I was like, well, it's not, about, it's not about the money. It's about brand awareness. And he's like, you have no product to sell. So that's when we realized, okay, we've done enough research. Either we're going to build this company and invest in a proper website and proper samples, or this was just a fun experiment for six months. Uh, and we decided to, to pull, uh, pull the trigger then and just go for it. Was there anything that existed out there like Milk and Honey Shoes before you came onto the market? Um, not the way we're doing it. When we first started building, by the time we launched, we had had, we had some competitors. So, you know, clearly a bunch of us out there were working on the idea at the same time. Um, but it's an amazingly quiet space because it is an amazingly difficult thing to do. We'll talk about what you needed to produce in order to have a successful e-commerce business. What does it really take? What pieces do you have to have? What has to be there in order for an e-commerce business to be successful? Well, assuming product is taken care of, right? Let's just assume you have an amazing product and it's ready to go. Um, to build this, you know, building the e-commerce site is half the battle and customer acquisition is half the battle. So what we did was we spent all our resources building the site and then you were ready to launch. Well, we don't have any marketing dollars. So it's how do you let people know you're there, right? So day number one, it's like doors open and we've been collecting email addresses for the past year. Uh, so we had I don't know, maybe 300 people on our email list when we launched. So we could blast those 300 people and we could blast our social channels. Like, we are live, come check us out. But starting a marketing plan from zero when you are 
when you have you have a good idea, which was helpful, right? So people were intrigued by the idea, but they'd go to your site and go, oh, this is a tiny little site. No one no one cares about this because we had no traffic at that point. So really kind of hustling some early marketing. Um, and again, before you launch, we were a completely bootstrapped company at the time. So it's not like we had resources to, you know, hire a fancy retargeting company or spend any money on Google AdWords or hire consultants. I mean, we had to really from the ground up, figure out how to get the word out. And e-commerce in itself is is, an, is a fascinatingly psychological business. There is a math and science to e-commerce in the same way that there's a math and science to how Vegas casinos make you spend more money. So we had to learn about that. We had to execute that. You know, our site has gone through probably five or six different complete redesigns in the, in the past few years. And that's been constant, constant learning. I mean, there there. Because it's such a high-growth industry, there are new studies coming out every week about what works, what people expect, how email marketing works, how social marketing works. And, you know, you really do need to stay on top of the trends. It's amazing something happened in the last three months that websites went from, you know, where websites went from everything has to be above the fold to, wait a minute, people scroll now. Mm-hmm. Not everything needs to be above the fold. We're not replicating the newspaper. This is a completely different medium, and it's taken X amount of years but we've broken the habit of people thinking that there's nothing below the fold. People now know, scroll. So that's changed the way websites look. So all of a sudden, our website that we had been in love with six months before looks terribly outdated. You know, so guess what? Back to the drawing board. Get our designers. Get UX. Get going on redesigning the website. And, and that, things like that change every six months. I mean, this is an incredibly, incredibly fascinating business. Can you talk about some of those initial strategies that you used with, you know, a very, very little, if any, marketing budget? How did you, you said you had this list of about 300 emails that you were able to blast, but what were the some of those actual strategies that you actually were able to go out and do and start gaining traction? Sure. So it's, it's, it's the hustle, right? It's what, what can I get for free? And, and we have an expensive product. So launching a $250 product means that I cannot gift it to every blogger and every editor in town, right? So we can talk about this a little bit more, but my sister and I just launched a new company that sells tights, and it's called Wade and & Bell. And Wade & Bell is an amazing retail tights for $20. So we can, you know, take a bit of a hit and send it out to a hundred different bloggers and try and get them to write about it. Infinitely easier than trying to get people to write about shoes with service that they can't test because we can't afford to gift it. So obviously social media is every entrepreneur's dream. It is relative, it's relatively easy to execute. It's hard to do execute very well, but easy to execute very fine. Um, and building your social channel so that you have people to market to. Email marketing has proved to be incredibly helpful for us. You know, in the beginning, my sister was designing all our emails and she is not a graphic designer, but it got the word out. You know, eventually we were able to hire a graphic designer and our emails look infinitely better and actually convert better when, once they look better. Um, the email marketing is relatively cheap. Social is free. Um, we started a, um, a celebrity charity program where we reached out to different celebrities and said, uh, design a pair of shoes of your choice and pick your favorite charity and 100% of the proceeds from the sale of these shoes will go to your charity. Well, that did a few things. Um, first of all, giving as a company was really important in our culture. So we were trying to figure out what ways were we planning on giving back to the community. We sell an indulgent product. So we think we then owe a little something to people that have less. So 
we really wanted to weave giving into our corporate culture. But it also got celebrities in our shoes. It got um, them to tweet about it, to Instagram about it. And it gave us something to feed the press. Like, look, Mullen Ackerman designed a pair of shoes. Well, that's a story. And if you're in Sound Magazine, maybe you write about it. So trying to generate story ideas, partnerships, those are the things that really get people's attention. You know, one of the other things that we did a lot of that cost no money are promotions. So, and, and, and cross promotions, more importantly. So whether, you know, we reached out to The Laundress, which is a New York-based high-end detergent company. And we figured... They are urban and um, and a bit pricier. It works perfect with our demographic. So we did a cross promotion with them. Learn how to take care of your shoes. Enter this contest to win a free pair of Melcomini shoes and all the products in the laundress. Enter here. Well, what that when they did the enter here, they had to give us their email addresses. So there we have a couple thousand email addresses that we can add to our database to remarket to. So just tricks like that that help you build the people that you can market to. I love that. And what I love most about that is the creativity when you didn't have the financial resources to do more. um, I I even want to say traditional marketing, but even in the, you know, even in the online space, traditional marketing are the Google ads, all all those sorts of things. And so to be able to have the creativity to do partnerships, to do all sorts of creative things that really gets the word out. That's brilliant. And it obviously worked very well. Yeah. I mean, listen, we've done, we did a bunch of things that didn't work. Um, but you just have to test and you have to try and hopefully keep your costs down. So if something is a total dud, it's not going to break the bank. But, you know, the stagnation, going back to kind of what I was saying about leaving jobs, is, is, is the only thing that's not an option. Can you give us an example of a dud, something that was just horrible that you kind of put your head, on, head in your hand and were like, oh, my God, why did we even do that? Oh, what an interesting question. I tend to go like right into denial and like pretend those things never happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did. Oh, yes. Oh. We did, like, um, women's shopping events, um, like, at convention centers where different brands would go to pay and women would come shop. And we don't have the right product for that. So it, we don't have an impulse purchase. And it's something that takes time, right? You want to design your perfect shoes. You want to look at colors. You want to look at leathers. You want to think about it. You want to try things on. It's not something where you're, like, bopping around and, like, buying a smelly soap, buying a pair of earrings, and buying a pair of shoes that you have to design yourself in a convention center that's, like, cold with gross lighting. So but we did a handful of those before I put my foot down and said I flatly refused to do any of these events again. But more importantly is what we were finding is people that bought in person were then not going back online. And we were really trying to build an online business. Doing in-person events for us wasn't scalable. So we stopped doing those pretty early on. In these years of, of really, you know, jumping out of corporate, starting the company and growing the company, what have been some of your biggest lessons as the CEO of the company? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, everything. The interesting thing about being the CEO of a small company is you have to do everything, right? There's certain days I'm like, today I'll be doing our sales tax. So today I'll be an accountant. You know, and the next day, it's, you, you like today I will be a lawyer and negotiate some contracts. And then certain days you've got women coming in here and you're doing straight up sales. So it's, it's being flexible. I think the hard thing is you've got the things you want to do and the things you need to do and a whole lot of things in the middle. So it's important to prioritize your day about you can't just do everything you want to do, right? Because there's tons of stuff that has to get done. And it's a scary thing to realize because my background is all in these big, huge companies, that if you don't do it, it doesn't just magically ever get done. 
Um, and that was a terrible lesson to have to learn. Um, but I think, you know, if, if, if you have the luxury to hire employees, it's important to hire people to do the things that you are not good at. Because I will spend all day dealing with my QuickBooks, and I know the accountant I now have that gets it done in about an hour and a half because it's her second language. And to me, QuickBooks is always one of those things where I have to Google how to get something done because I don't know which thing to click on, and I'm always so scared I'm going to delete everything. But knowing where you are financially is insanely important, so you can't not do it, but your time is probably better spent in areas you're stronger. Well, let's talk about that a little bit about growing your team and how you've been able to manage that. So, you know, I think that every business owner comes to that breaking point where they reach exactly what you were talking about, which is, oh my gosh, I just can't do one more thing. And there's stuff that keeps on piling up, piling up. I got to finally get, give some of it over. So, Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about how you hired on, you know, even your first couple of employees, how you were able to delegate, um, and then what that process was of building your team? I think if you have a difficult time delegating, then you have not hired the right person. And talking about failing fast, one of the things that, that we always heard that did not take to heart the first few employees we had is fire fast. Mm. You know, you want to be thoughtful and, and respectful of someone who quit a job and came to work for you. But, um, you know, we've had, we had some early employees that were not either the right culture fit. You know, working in a startup is not an easy job. And the hours are intense and the work is intense. And, there's a whole lot of chaos because you can do something like, hey, let's do X. And that requires 20 hours of work to get it done and let's get it done by tomorrow. Because you don't have to do, when you work at a big company, usually, you have to go through levels of approvals and let's talk about it in our business meeting next week. You know, my crazy sister can come up with a half-baked idea and we have to execute it the next day. Um, so you need someone who's nimble and fast and is able to be flexible with their time and with their, with their energy. And um, that takes a very specific type of person. So when we first started, um, I had a tough time delegating. So I was used to doing everything. But then I realized I just didn't trust the person I was supposed to be delegating to. Once we made some adjustments in what our team was and we hired the right people, you know, I do you want to hire, you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. I mean, I remember talking to um, one of my early bosses when I was working in, um, in production at MTV. And I said, I don't think I want to do this. I think I want to try something else. And she, when she asked me why, I said, I don't think I'm good at it. And her response was, I'm not good at it either. I just surround myself with people that are very good at it and I let them do their job. So I always realized that hiring people smarter than you is 100% the way to go. I don't need to prove to anyone that I'm the boss. I know I'm the boss. So ideally they'll be smarter than me. I can learn from them. They'll bring a whole new level of perspective to the business that I didn't have before. And once you hire people that you trust implicitly, delegating is really easy. I like that perspective. I've never really heard that perspective before. I've always felt I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. And so I've always felt like, oh, it's I need to work on this perfectionism. I need to learn how to delegate more. But I love the idea of um, really being able to recognize sort of the entire situation as a whole, you know, maybe that maybe there's something else going on on the other end that you're that there's something in your gut not one wanting to give it up for a reason. So now you and your sister own this company together. What is it like running the company with your sister? What roles do you have? And how how do you guys manage that team together? Um, any co founder relationship is incredibly challenging. Uh, it's, there's so much, again, especially in the early days, there's so much pressure. You are sleep deprived, you are broke, you are exhausted. Um, and 
there's a lot of, a lot of, and you're looking to place blame. Like, whose fault is this that it's not working? It can't be mine. It's got to be, it's got to be hers. Um, so co-founder relationships are really challenging. That said, I could never imagine doing this with anyone other than my sister, just with the amount of implicit trust. You know, I don't look at her expenses. I don't wonder if she's working. I don't, you know, I don't question any of it because she's my sister. So if my business fails and I miss a mortgage payment, I'm calling her, you know, we're in this together, literally. Um, so, you know, it's, it's certainly challenging when I really don't want to talk about business, but I kind of miss my sister. So, you know, we've gotten really good at um, wearing that, like when we're wearing our business hat, that's what we're doing. I mean, sometimes it's a little tough and, and, you know, things feed into the other, but oftentimes I'll call her. I say, can I just, I'm like, can we have a sister conversation? Mm. And she's like, sure. How are you? You know, we just take all the animosity and stress from work and put it aside. And we're about 85% of the time, we're really good at that. And she'll be like, oh, my God, what's going on with your boyfriend? And, you know, we'll just, we'll just have straight-up sister talk and not CEO talk. You know, that said, there are certain times where, you know, we're at a, you know, we're, at, like, at a family event and so not in the work zone. And she'll look at me and she'll go, have you updated that page yet? And I just, you know, I just want to punch in the face and go, oh, my God, not now. You know, it's hard <laughs> to get away from it sometimes. You know, you're business partner is always there, right? You go home for Thanksgiving, it's like, up, oh, there she is. It's like mom's birthday, it's like, up, oh, there she is again. So it can be challenging sometimes, but I wouldn't do it any other way. That's great. And I can totally identify it. As I said, my husband and I work together and we do that exact same thing where it's, you know, we might pick up the phone or I see him at night and I'm like, okay, I need to talk to you as your wife right now. Or, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm talking to you as the COO right now. Like, let's, let's talk about this. And we have to, and it's been a process actually over the past six years for us to really define, okay, who does what, who's in charge of what conversations? um, When are we talking work? When are we talking home life? And, um, and you're, and you're, you're so right. I've never heard anybody else mention that, but it is the totally in the middle of family reunion. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, did that report get done? Oh my gosh, we need to go do it now. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. That happens a a little too, a little too frequently. And it's just, you know, because sometimes we're on the same page and even though we are in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, we both are like in the work zone and kind of want to like sneak upstairs and, you know, make a change to the website. But if one person's there and the other person isn't, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So can you talk to us about some of those times that you have sort of fallen flat on your butt or you've just had those days where, oh my gosh, this is such a low moment. How in the world do I wake up in the morning and do this all over again? Tell us about some of those moments and what you've done to just keep on going. Oh, yeah. So um, there's a a radar term called WITFIO, which stands for what the F is over. People in, in the drug community talk about their WITFIO moments. Like one of those moments where you're like, oh, this business is over. It's never going to happen. Um, and we've definitely had a handful of those where you think our numbers, you know, and for us it usually happens in the summer when, when e-commerce numbers are really low because people are not, A, in front of their computers, B, they're certainly not buying shoes or, you know, it's a beach in their flip-flops. Um, and you think, oh, this is it, you know, GDG numbers are terrible. No one's coming back. How are we going to be, you know, how are we ever going to become profitable? You know, those moments are hard. Um, you know, when you look at that bank account dwindling and you think if I get out now, I could save some space or if I could figure it out. But I think being an entrepreneur is somewhat of a, of a drug. It does make you make irrational, ridiculous decisions. Um, there is a, a bit of psychosis that's involved with thinking that you can do the virtually undoable. You know, if you look at the numbers about the failure rate of 
of startups, I mean, it's higher than the divorce rate. But, you know, you have to have the confidence to go, yeah, I know that, but whatever, I'm different. Um, so it's certainly an element of delusion, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, <laughs> but it's also, it's that moment, you know, when we, we spoke to an advisor a while back and it was one of these moments where like, I don't know, it doesn't feel, you know, what are we going to do? And it was, this is the moment where you figure out, are you an entrepreneur? Or are you not? You know, and it's growing up, my father would always say, are you a man or are you a mouse? Mm-hmm. And so when you have those moments and you think, oh, like, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm not a mouse, I'm a man, you know, and, and you just have to get remotivated. And, and um, you know, sometimes it, it, you have to do the opposite of what you want to do, meaning instead of working harder and diving in and figure it out, like sometimes what you actually have to do is turn off your phone and turn off your computer and go watch the sunset or go clear your mind because when you're so overwhelmed with fear and overwhelmed with um, a grim reality, it gets paralyzing for me at least. So I need to first get out of the paralysis and then go back into, you know, excitement. Because, you know, one of my favorite sayings is startups are like roller coasters, except for there are no seatbelts and people do fall off. And that's Mm. exactly right. And you have to know that that's what you're getting into going into it. And it it is a privilege. And I think what you experience now is what, you know, so many young entrepreneurs say, but I, I don't have any money. And so how can I raise money until I show revenue and I can't show revenue until I have any money? And that doesn't make sense. And the answer is like, you're right. That doesn't make sense. But it's like every aspiring actor or writer out there. You can't get a job until you have an agent. You can't get an agent until you have a job. Well, everybody wants to be an actor. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. That, that's the test. Can you execute the impossible? And if you can, then you've earned the right to be an entrepreneur. And if you can't, then you go work for someone else. I love that. Very, very brilliant. I'm going to quote that for you in this one. (laughs) (laughs) You brought up a good point about, um, you know, talking to your advisor. What do you do to keep yourself sharp and always staying strategic and working on top of your business? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I fail tremendously regularly at staying on top of my business. I think I oftentimes, you know, that's, again, one of the things that we really work on. I don't want to work in my business. I want to work on my business. And I have not figured out the magic recipe there. Um, but because we do work in a bubble, right? We're a small team. It's me and my sister. We don't have a ton of people that oftentimes you do need outsider's perspective. And oftentimes, you know, the support of, of advisors or, or people in the community that go, man, what you're doing is awesome. You think, oh, I just needed to hear that. You know, I think it's great. But, you know, I also am convinced that I think my child will be beautiful even if perhaps she's not. You know, you can, you need some, you do need some sort of outside validation. You do need people to support you. You do need to say, hey, how do I structure this deal? You need to say things like, I, you know, here's this opportunity. What do I do? Because, you know, Googling doesn't give you the answer to everything. You need some, some human contact that can point you in the right direction sometimes. Any books in particular, any business books that you have read that have really impacted the way that you run your company? Um, I, I, you know, one of the books that I, I really like is, um, Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational, because understanding why we make the decisions we do and as human beings, we're wired a certain way. Um, I find that really interesting, just kind of behavioral economics of it all. Um, you know, I have a very specific mission with my site. I want you to come. I want you to design shoes. I want you to put them in your shopping cart, and I want you to check out. So what are the things I can do to make those decisions easier for you? What is the environment I can create that will lead you to click the 
buy now button. You know, things things like that I find very interesting. You obviously have a lot of energy, Dory, but what yeah. keeps you what keeps you fired up? What keeps you going into the office every day? What keeps you wanting to create new strategies? What what is that fire for you? I love my job. I love I never have that Sunday night anxiety of, oh, I have to go to work tomorrow. There's certain things my job I don't love, like, oh, I can't believe I have to do my sales tax. You know, that's not fun. But, you know, we've set up a nice environment where I sit in a pretty office with people I like doing work I like. So it doesn't take that much motivation to want to keep doing it. It's, you know, everything I hoped it would be. So, you know, I like feeling that this will be what I'm able to do for a long time. And that's what keeps me motivated. And what is your vision for Milk and Honey Shoes? Um, you know, we there, there's so many different directions we're talking about going. Um, obviously, Down Your Shoes is, is a fun little hook, but it's a great intro to a bunch of different ways. So we've got, we've got some ideas, and, and we'll see where it ends up going. What do you think is your larger purpose? Like, what do you see in the years ahead for you? Why do you think that you're here? You know, when I was younger, it was, I want, I want to make X amount of money and I want to get X title and I want to make X amount of movies. And, you know, you have all sorts of, I think, more exterior ideas of success. Uh, for me, at this point in my life, it's pretty simple. I want a happy and healthy family. I want to have kids that I can raise in a really comfortable environment where, you know, I can send them to summer camp. And I want to have a business I enjoy running and I enjoy working. And I want to be able to eat sushi out for every meal and not have to worry about it. (laughs) Dory, I really want to thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story. Um, You and your sister have had an incredible ride. And thank you so much for giving us the insights to how you've gotten to where you are and uh, where you're you're going from here. I'm really excited to continue watching your journey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on today. Absolutely. Thank you. What a powerhouse. I absolutely loved my conversation with Dory, and I hope you did too. If you did, go to iTunes, find the Business Women Rock podcast, and give us five stars. Tell us what you thought, and go visit our website at bizwomenrock.com. There you will see the show notes from my conversation with Dory. You'll get some really, really great quotes that I got out of this, a couple really great takeaways, and uh, you'll see the link to the book that she really loves as well as, of course, the link to her website, milkandhoneyshoes.com. Thank you so much for listening and keep rocking it.